what would you do if you saw a photo of a child who you were pretty sure was you on a milk carton alongside text claiming that your family had been missing you for years since you'd been kidnapped? What if you already had loving parents and had never experienced anything you might recognize as the trauma associated with kidnapping victims? This is what happens in Caroline B. Cooney's The Face on the Milk Carton, a 1990 book for teens that we discussed on episode 38 of the podcast. This is what happens in Caroline B. Cooney's The Face on the Milk Carton, a 1990 book for teens that we discussed on episode 38 of the podcast. Nearly four years later, we are revisiting this narrative with a conversation about the follow-up to The Face on the Milk Carton. In Whatever Happened to Janie, main character Janie Johnson, who recently learned that she was actually born Jenny Spring, reconnects with her birth parents and four siblings. Janie is thrown right into things with the Springs, with little consideration for how scary these revelations have been for her, or for the fact that she is a victim of the bizarre circumstances that brought her to the Johnsons in the first place, even if she was never actually injured. In this book, Cooney takes readers into the heart and mind of Janie, but also of Stephen and Jody, the teenage siblings she's only recently met. The entire family has been deeply impacted by this situation, and Cooney renders everyone extremely human and empathetic. We talk about this quite a bit on today's episode. We also discuss identity crises, the big moments that happen off the page in Whatever Happened to Janie, sibling rivalry, our many questions about the decisions made by adults in this book, our evolving conversation around trauma and mental health, and the author's cringy portrayal of sex work and poverty. This week's guest just so happens to be the author of one of my favorite books of 2022, Caitlin Barish. A Novel Obsession was a GMA buzz pick and best new beach read by Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. She earned her BA from Colorado College and her MFA from New York University. Caitlin's work has appeared in more than a dozen publications, including Catapult, Day One, The Forge, and Hobart. A former bookseller, Caitlin currently teaches creative writing at the Writer's Circle. She was born and raised in New York and now lives in Brooklyn. Follow Caitlin on Instagram at SoEmbarrassed and on Twitter at Caitlin Barish. I know social media can be a tricky place sometimes, but I am personally so grateful for the community we've built online around SSR. I absolutely love chatting with many of you across social platforms. You have convinced me that virtual friendships are very real, especially when they're built around a shared passion, like books. If you're not following SSR, consider this your official invitation. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at SSRPod, and on Facebook when you search the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. Our online community gets even cozier on Patreon, a platform that connects independent creators like me with the fans of the content they make, like you. As an independent creator, I really appreciate the support that SSR gets through Patreon, which starts at just $1 per month. I have tons of fun putting together the bonus content for my patrons, including bonus episodes, newsletters, and reading recap videos. I also love leading monthly book clubs with our members. If you're looking for more bookish friends, need book recommendations, or simply want to support the work I do, you can learn more at www.patreon.com ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. Do you enjoy audiobooks? We are in the thick of winter as I record this, so why don't you grab yourself a fuzzy blanket, 
a cup of hot chocolate or cider, and listen to one of the books on your TBR. Libro.fm is a great place to buy audiobooks because it supports indie booksellers instead of giant corporations. The audiobooks you buy there will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. We all rely on Amazon for plenty of things, but since audiobooks are sent directly to your phone no matter where you buy them, this is a solid place to make the switch. Plus, you can use code SSRPODCAST when prompted on the site, that's libro.fm, to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I am listening to Prince Harry's Spare on Libro.fm right now, and I am really enjoying it. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you for having me. I am really excited because today we are talking about Whatever Happened to Janie, which is the second book in the Janie slash Jenny series by Caroline Cooney. It was published in 1993. The first book in the series was The Face on the Milk Carton, which we did an episode about back in 2019. Listeners, you can go check that out. I will link to it in the show notes if you need a refresher. Oh my goodness, this series. Okay, Caitlin, let's start by just swapping some memories about the series. Did you read it when you were a kid? What do you remember about it? And why did you want to come back to it for this episode? So crazily enough, I had actually only ever read the first book in the series. I think that perhaps when I read the first book, I maybe had no idea that it was a series, which obviously must have been some massive cliffhanger because you you find out something crazy in the first book that you're not expecting. And so revisiting the series as a whole, but reading the second, which I honestly have no recollection of at all. So either I read this one so long ago that it, it no longer sticks in my brain or I really never read it. And so I was coming to it with sort of like vague recollections of what the first book had been, but zero clue about how it actually wrapped up. And now that I know there's several books after the second one, I will probably be reading those. (laughs) So all I remember honestly is, is the milk carton itself. I feel like that is such an iconic image not only from the book itself, but just from that period of time. And I honestly remembered it as being, I mean, on the one hand, it's a very sinister book because it deals with themes that, you know, are quite adult themes, even though it's a YA novel. But I remember it being more sinister. And maybe that's because of sort of the proliferation of true crime novels where women and girls are in like much more horrible circumstances than what turns out to be the reality of this book. So in my mind, perhaps I was imagining that it was going to be much more triggering. So I kind of entered the book very warily. I'm not really sure what I was going to discover because I, for some reason, did not remember the most crucial twist of that first book. So I feel like it must have been sort of uh, supplanted by all the horrible stories we've heard, you know, in the decades since about 
kidnapped women and girls. So that was surprise to me. But there's so much drama and it's so juicy, despite the fact that her kidnapping was not filled with violence and horror, thankfully. But there's still so much drama despite that. Um, and I was really like thrilled by that. And yeah. What about you? So I was a huge fan of this series as a kid. As a child of the 90s, the the fear of kidnapping, I just remember it looming like very large. And like you said, it's that that image of the milk carton is such an icon. I think it's because there were several like really high profile kidnapping cases that were starting to be discussed in this like increasingly, it wasn't quite a 24-7 news cycle, but it was getting there in the 90s. And so I, I feel like kidnapping was just like very much a part of my childhood in a weird way. Like I, I think I thought about it and obsessed over it probably more than was maybe necessary given the real circumstances of my life. Does that resonate with you at all? It does. And it's sort of interesting because I had a very sort of split childhood in terms of my environment. Like I, my first 11 years, I lived in Manhattan um, and then I moved to Westchester County, which is an hour outside of New York. It's a suburb of the, of the city. And I feel like, strangely enough, I never feared being kidnapped, even though I was surrounded by people in the city. I think because perhaps my parents, knowing that there are so many people in the city, kept a pretty like tight leash on me, not not an actual leash, but a sort of metaphoric leash. And I remember just how exciting it was when I turned 10, when I got to sort of travel through the city on my own. I got like my first cell phone, which was one of those sort of absolutely <laughs> yeah. like ancient cell phones with, an with literal antenna. And I would use oh, yeah. it, <laughs> I would use it to just walk the dog around the block. And I would have to be on the phone with my with my parents the entire time. But that was sort of like the only freedom they could give me at that moment in time. I was 11. I got to walk the dog around the block while on the phone with them the entire time. And I think weirdly enough, I mean, I perhaps because I was born and raised in the city and my family was very comfortable with knowing how to raise me in the city. It was not until I reached the suburbs that I feel like people around me started to talk about that fear, the fear of being kidnapped more than in the city, which I don't I don't know what what that is. Like maybe it's just because the suburbs seem so idyllic. There's sort of that cliche and obviously that's explored in this book, this idea of, you know, like the beautiful Connecticut suburb where she lives and then the New Jersey suburb where she was born. And so interestingly enough, I it wasn't really even on my radar being afraid of that until perhaps later in my teenhood, which is maybe the opposite of what you'd expect. Yeah, well, and I grew up in the suburbs, so that that tracks. And I think that this book, I guess, fed into that complex that I developed as a kid, but also just, I, I don't know, maybe I was able to explore some of those fears in a different way through the series. And as you said, Caitlin, kind of, I guess, the, the blessing, if there is one, of Jenny slash Janie's situation in this story is that while she is kidnapped and taken from the family into which she was born, there wasn't anything violent or overtly scary in the moment when she was kidnapped. And so if anything, this was just kind of like an interesting like twist on a story that I felt like I knew all too well as a kid. And actually, as I'm talking about this, we'll, we'll chat about your book more at the end of the of our time together today. But I've spoken quite a bit with people about how I loved the novel Obsession so much because I don't generally read a lot of thrillers, but there was something about it that felt like just a different take on a thriller. And 
that's kind of how I'm feeling as I talk about and process the series. Like I wouldn't normally as a kid have been drawn to a book that was scary or thrillery, but this is a different twist on that. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, it's interesting that you refer to my novel as a thriller because it's, I, and I love that because it's yeah. like, I didn't set out to write a thriller either. <laughs> I think yeah. that I just, I set out to write something that was inherently suspenseful because I find that relationships are inherently suspenseful. Like how a relationship is going to develop. What are the stakes of a relationship? How are people going to hurt each other? Because I feel like that isn't always inevitable in any relationship is that you're going to hurt someone. The scale of that hurt can vary and hopefully you're not going to hurt someone irrevocably but I just am so fascinated by relationships um, and the inherent suspense of them that I just set out to write a book about relationships that ended up being sort of a thriller and who knows if I will ever write a thriller again um, I have no idea but I think with this book similarly the relationships is are what creates the suspense is like will Jenny slash Janie be able to accept her new slash old family, right? She returns to her old family and has to completely readjust her entire life view, essentially, um, and has this like, really profound identity crisis. And the whole family has this really profound identity crisis. And I'm so fascinated by that. And I feel like what I really admired about this book and what I would actually hope to replicate in other books of my own is just capturing like the really raw, really ugly emotions that accompany human relationships um, and how sometimes the reaction that you want to have to something is the complete opposite reaction that you actually have, right? You know, you sort of assume this family is just going to be so freaking delighted to finally be reunited and that it's going to be a happily ever after, right? She finally returns to her birth family happily ever after. And what I loved about this book is it was absolutely the opposite of that. Um, on the one hand, you see the relief, you see the joy but you also see the anxiety, you see the disassociation, you see the anger and the fear. And it's just, it was really brilliantly done, I think, that this entire book, like, the suspense did not lie in any sort of big twists or revelations. It really was all about how these families are coping with one gaining a daughter and one losing a daughter. And I just found that really profound. And I'm glad that I reread it at this moment in time because... I just think that that is, is sort of what I'm always aiming for, is just finding the ugly emotions and the raw the rawness of, of how we relate to one another. Yeah, to your point, there's actually not a whole lot that happens in this book. The first book has a lot more action. If anything, if I had a criticism about this book, it's that I feel like a lot of things were told rather than shown, and there were a few big moments that happened off the page that I would have loved to see happening in real time. But there's not a lot like of action. It's mostly internal processing and, as you said, relationship drama. But to bring listeners up to speed, because as we mentioned, the first book is just like kind of a wild ride. In the first book, we meet Janie Johnson, who lives in this idyllic suburb in Connecticut. She's the only daughter of Frank and Miranda Johnson, and she is just adored by them. They seem to be upper middle class. They have a real love for culture and museums and travel and all of these things. And one day when she is in the lunchroom, Janie grabs for her friend Sarah Charlotte's milk carton, which is weird because she doesn't drink milk. She's allergic to milk, but she had had a peanut butter sandwich. And so she needed something to unstick that peanut buttery feeling that so many of us know too well. And she sees a photo on the side of the milk carton that she realizes is her when she was a kid. So she, of course, freaks out because who wouldn't? And there's a lot of drama that kind of goes into the ultimate realization and the twist that we discover at the end of the book. But the conclusion is that 
Frank and Miranda Johnson themselves did not kidnap Janie, but their daughter, Hannah, did. And they thought that Hannah had given birth to Janie. Hannah had gone off and joined what we uh, are made to understand as some sort of a cult. And she came back after a few years and just had this little girl with her. And when she disappeared again, um, Frank and Miranda were like, okay, I guess we will adopt our grandchild as our child and we will pretend that she is our child. And they didn't want Hannah to get in trouble for anything that had happened with the cult. So they changed their name and moved and just kind of like uprooted their whole life. But it turns out that Hannah actually had kidnapped Janie, who was born as Jenny Spring to a family in New Jersey. And so Frank and Miranda Johnson kind of got in a little bit deeper than they maybe thought that they had because they are now like harboring a kidnapper and the child who she kidnapped. Does that cover it? I think it does. Absolutely. And so this book really involves just her returning to the Springs and having to reintegrate into the family that she left when she was three, which is, you know, she was so young. Three is barely, you know, you just kind of like, I guess, just learned to walk, just learned to talk. I'm actually, I know nothing about child development. I could (laughs) be completely wrong about that. But, you know, young enough to really not have that many memories. Like, I don't have many memories from before I was three. And so the fact is that she just grew up with an entirely different family and then was returned to them at like age 15, which is horrifying. Like you think of, I think of myself at age 15 and if I had been torn away from my friends and like my boyfriend and my life and my house, it would have been an absolute disaster. So yeah, it's just already the, the what if scenario that I feel like this book was built on is already so intriguing. Absolutely. And we may use the names Janie and Jenny interchangeably a bit in in this episode. As Caitlin mentioned, the crux of this book is that Janie is moving to New Jersey to be with her biological family, the Springs, and they are trying very hard to kind of transform her immediately into the Jenny Spring that they brought into the world. And so at turns, uh, she is called Janie. Sometimes she's called Jenny. She almost always thinks of herself as Janie, which is, of course, important as she navigates this identity crisis. But you may hear both of those names as we go through this conversation. Okay. I have a couple of questions about, like, the law that I don't think we will get to the bottom of today, Caitlin. But uh, I just, I'm just not sure that in 2023, a child in Janie's situation would have just been like so swiftly returned to her family of origin after this massive news um, had crossed her consciousness. I mean, as far as we know, it has been like a matter of weeks since she found this milk carton. And now all of a sudden, not only has she learned this bombshell about herself and her childhood, but she is going to live with these people that she's never met. And I do think that in 2023, maybe there's more of an expectation of like, some different kinds of research that would have gone into a book like this because they're, it's a little thin as far as how all of this happened. Um, we're made to understand that Janie is concerned that if she does not go with the Springs, she worries that her adoptive parents' daughter, Hannah, will then be prosecuted and like all of her crimes will come out again. I don't, I don't really think that's how it works, but Janie, of course, has all the best intentions. I just think we all can agree that this is not a good idea for anybody's mental or emotional health. No, I I was thinking about that a lot too, because it just feels like nowadays there'd probably be more discussion about what's best for the child. I feel like 
perhaps the two parents would have figured out some sort. I mean, this is even come up, comes up in the book, this idea that there could be like a visitation, you know, that maybe she would be reintegrated with her birth family, but in the sense of they would maybe see her on weekends or something. I have no idea. Like you, I am not a lawyer. I have no background in law. I have no idea how this would work in the real world and not in fiction. And there are definitely like moments in the book that feel a bit convenient, which I think is, is that happens in a lot of books. You know, we have to get from point A to point B plot wise. And so something happens that we raise our eyebrows at, but kind of just let, let it happen um, because we know where the book is trying to take us. But yeah, it is interesting. It also felt like as a 15 year old, maybe she wouldn't have been thinking so much about the legal repercussions for her parents or, you know, her adopted parents and or for the woman who kidnapped her. Like, I think that she just wouldn't have been thinking about it in those terms. But again, like it, you know, it's sort of there is like this what is the um the suspension of disbelief that we have to sort of just go with? But yeah, I definitely wondered just how this would have changed if it was written now. I mean, there would be so many. This book probably wouldn't exist now, right? It, it There's so many, you know, there's obviously so many children that are still kidnapped um, and taken from their homes, but we don't use milk cartons anymore. We don't use pictures on milk cartons. There's much more advanced DNA. And you'd just be seeing things on the internet. You'd have like your amateur Instagram sleuths. Like there would just be so many different ways this book would go. And brief digression is that I actually, a woman that I've done some events with and who was also published by the same publisher as me, she's also a friend of mine now. Her name is Karen Wynn and she wrote a book called Our Little World that was published this year. Or actually not this year because it is 2023, last year, still so early in the year. And she, you know, her book explicitly takes place in the 80s because it also deals with a missing child. And she knew she didn't want to have to address the ways in which missing children are dealt with today and handled today and the way that those cases work. And so she wanted to kind of place it in a pre-internet time, aka the 80s. So these are definitely questions that authors are thinking about nowadays, like how does technology interfere with stories we want to tell and how do certain time frames just make more sense for the story that we want to tell and I feel like this is definitely a conversation that's been ongoing um, with my writer friends just like what decade is the best decade to tell the story we want to tell and I'm just obsessed with social media and the ways that it works in our lives so I feel like I will always be you know 2010 onwards <laughs> but yeah it's just an interesting thing to think about sometimes just the ways in which we have to deal with that as fiction writers. Yeah. And listeners know that I'm in the process of querying my first novel, which deals heavily in social media. And so I, like you, I'm like, wait, how it, it would make a lot of things easier not to have social media. And I think something I worry about with my own writing is like, how quickly is this going to age? Because maybe by the time the book, again, like fingers crossed comes out, like these modes of social media won't even be the thing anymore. But it is jarring to read a book like Whatever Happened to Janie and be like, oh, no, it's like a literal milk carton that you're pinning your hopes and dreams on to reunite your family. I will say that toward the end of the book, some of Janie's biological siblings, Stephen and Jody, they more explicitly acknowledge like how random it would be for them to find the proverbial needle in the haystack of Hannah, who is... Janie's original kidnapper, just like it was such a weird coincidence that led them to being reunited with Janie in the first place. So I did like that there was a moment where the author is like, yeah, like, I know that this is really kind of wild. I do think in 2023, even if all of the other events of the book had been the same, and even if the book had been set in the 90s, for example, 
I like to think maybe we would have met like a social worker, perhaps like a single person to sort of guide the transition because. Yeah, rather than a police officer, because that feels like a bit a bit dated as well. The idea yeah, that police would be like, <laughs> like trusted. Yeah, like an FBI man who just like shows up at the house is definitely kind of jarring because it's not only a difficult transition for Janie, but for all of the springs. So the book opens not on Janie because we've met her in the previous book and we got to know her very well in that book. But we actually start the book with Jody and Stephen, who are the two oldest siblings in the Spring family. Stephen is the oldest and then Jody. And we kind of get a sense of like how their lives have been impacted by Jenny slash Janie's disappearance and how they never had any freedom. Their parents have always been super strict because obviously like they're scarred by the fact that one of their children was kidnapped at a shopping center when she was three years old. It's made Steven very angry. We hear about an outburst that he has when he's in fourth grade about how much he hates Janie and how she ruined his life and their life as a family. And this family is extremely religious and they pray before every meal. And after fourth grader Steven has this outburst, they they say a prayer about how they're like letting go of Janie as a family and how they're going to try to move forward as, as a family unit of six rather than seven, which is really sad but also like quite powerful yeah yeah I agree I I found it really I I loved that this book kind of zoomed out um, and gave us insight into all of the different members of the family because I I just think that so often it is completely the like the world and the media revolves around the missing child and not the children that were left behind or that you know, are still living there, existing with the trauma of it. And so I think it was a really good idea on Caroline B. Cooney's part to sort of allow us insight into what the family dealt with in the aftermath. So therefore then show us like, not only how jarring it was to lose a sister and to have your whole childhood sort of haunted by that, but also how jarring it is to get the sister back. And, you know, the ways in which the like attention would be taken away from the children that are still in the family and still exist. And I think sibling rivalry is such a juicy and fertile place for fiction to live. Like I have always been interested in reading about books about siblings. And so I feel like for this book, I I really believed that Steven would be angry and that Jody would be angry and that the twins would just be like, who is this girl? I don't know her. Like she wasn't around when we were born growing up. You know, I, I loved that they all had their own private grief um, and their own private internal war of like both wanting to reach out and to connect with this long lost sister, but also really resenting the impact she's had, the, her absence has had on the family and resenting the fact that she's not even like that happy to be back. You know, she's like missing the fact that she lived in this like posh area in Connecticut and got to go horseback riding and go to Broadway shows. And, you know, so I think there's just, there's a lot of rich stuff here and with the siblings. And I think that was my favorite part about it. Like obviously the parents and, and their sort of the really harsh, like rejection of her birth parents is really poignant and powerful, but in, in a way, like I'm not a parent. So I, I wasn't as, I was more empathetic with the siblings because yeah. they didn't ask for any of this. And it just is happening. And it's ju- it's been probably just as a major jarring thing to happen in their childhood as it was for Janie. Except that Janie, in a way, didn't even have to live with it. Like her yeah. siblings lived with it, you know? She just thought she like had this great life in Connecticut. So yeah, it, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it was great that it started, that the book started with, with them. 
Yeah, I have two excerpts that kind of zoom in on how Jody was feeling as the family realizes that like, oh, Jenny is fine and she's coming back. One reads, the thing Jody could not get over now that her sister Jenny had turned out to be alive and coming home was that there had never been a horror. They had imagined all of it. Jenny had not died. She had not been tortured. She had not been cold or lost or drowned or raped or even frightened. Jenny had been just fine all along. And then the second is, it was so confusing and astonishing to find that all along, Jenny had been happy and healthy and warm and everything else that was good. The Springs had never needed to worry. And yet I'm sure Jody is like, my parents haven't worried this whole time. And we're all angsty to begin with as teenagers. And so if I'm putting myself in Jody's shoes, it's like, I would have had totally different parents if my parents had not been plagued by this worry and trauma for all of these years um and who knows like all of the other opportunities that may have been afforded to us as a family if they had not been kind of like locked in time trying to figure out what happened to their other daughter yeah 100 percent. i think those are great excerpts because it's also like you know as i mentioned before it seems like when janie returns all the attention goes directly to her into her experience of having been kidnapped of having grown up in a different family but really like, no one really thought to sit down with Jody and Steven and be like, how did this affect you? Like, the parents didn't even really seem to care. It felt like they were all just, this is how they grew up because of what happened to them. But it didn't feel like Jody and Steven, like, ever went to therapy or, like, you know, there were sort of these interesting moments where I was thinking, you know, if I had experienced what Jody had experienced, I would be an incredibly fucked up person, you know? And, you know, Janie having to go through that identity crisis and returning to a family that she barely remembers is its own kind of trauma, um, but it's a different kind of trauma. And so, like, again, Jody was the one who had to live with the possibility of horror um, and and violence, whereas Janie never did. So it's sort of, I don't know, it's, it's kind of fascinating in the way that really the, the people that suffered the most are her family. Yeah, every single person in this book would benefit from therapy. And I'm of the mind that most people in the world would benefit from therapy, but... I really saw some opportunities here for um, just attention to mental health. And the other thing that I was thinking about was, and of course, I was a kid when I read this book in the 90s, so I wasn't aware of like all of the big conversations that were going on in the zeitgeist. But I feel like our language around trauma is so different now. And I would be curious to talk to somebody who read this book as an adult, maybe as like a teacher or a librarian or an educator in the 90s or early aughts. Um, who then came back to it now, who was able to sort of speak to the way that they perceived it as grownups in that time versus how they perceive it now. Just because I think that like for us now, it's like so apparent that every single person here is dealing with real trauma, PTSD, like everybody has suffered here. And it's no wonder that people are acting in ways that we as innocent bystanders might kind of be judgmental of, but it's because real trauma has taken place. And I, I think that because the conversation around trauma has evolved, it's impossible not to process all of that differently. Yeah, there's a moment actually in the book that I was that I immediately thought of when you were just speaking just now, um, because it sort of begins to almost allude to what trauma, how trauma can manifest like in the body. And it, 
it's like quite late in the book, but it's on page 134 when Stephen, the oldest brother, is sort of observing Janie, his sister, and he and it, it, it's written, um, Stephen watched emotions chase each other over Janie's face. He could almost see the kidnapping happening in the folds and changes in her cheeks and around her eyes. It frightened him the way she could vanish into the past like that and forget the people next to her here in the present. Um, and I really thought that was lovely because that I feel like is a conversation that we that we talk about around trauma, how sometimes, you know, it still like lives in the body and people can go back there just like that. And, you know, you can be seemingly present in the room with people that love you and in a place that feels safe. But if you like allow your mind to go back to the traumatic event, like you can immediately relive it and have these like traumatic flashbacks. And I think this was like the closest the book came to talking about it in those terms, but you know, didn't obviously like, because the conversation perhaps wasn't happening at that time, it didn't go farther than that. But there was definitely that moment where I was like, okay, this would have been, if this was a book written now, like this would maybe be where they would talk about trauma and how trauma manifests. But that was sort of the closest we got to it. But I appreciated this little passage because I thought it was really true and honest. Yeah, she was getting there. Like for the time that was pretty progressive. She's like butting up against it. The weird thing is that we don't actually see the reunion with Jenny and the Springs. And I, I was a little confused because the first chapter takes place with Stephen and Jody primarily. And then the second chapter gets into how Janie is experiencing this sort of upcoming change, moving in with the Springs, leaving her home in Connecticut. All of a sudden she's in New Jersey. And I kind of was like flipping back and forth because I was like, wait, 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 did I miss it? And I, I wonder why she chose to do that. I'm sure she, I'm sure she had a great reason to do that, but I, I was wondering why we didn't get to see it. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I didn't, it, like, honestly, didn't even occur to me until you just said, and, and I think like on the one hand, it would have been really great to see it, but on the other, and like, this is just sort of a personal anecdote and with my novel, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but there's this you know, there's a confrontation that takes place towards the end between the two protagonists of the book, Rosemary and Naomi, but the, the confrontation doesn't happen in perhaps the way that a reader would imagine it would. And I've definitely, even though I like stand by the way that it ended and I, it has resonated with a lot of people and I'm glad I did it that way, I've definitely had a few readers who are like, oh, we wanted this kind of confrontation or like, why didn't you choose to do that kind of confrontation? And it's interesting to me because I feel like for whatever reason, sometimes the reunion or the confrontation, like there's only sort of one way that I could picture it happening. Like, you know, you'd imagine Janie stepping out of the car, seeing her family, people hug, people feel frozen, people don't know what to do. Like it almost feels like the language around the immediacy of that reunion would have felt like too obvious or like there, I feel like there would have been like the wrong way to go about it and so sort of throwing us directly into just like the experience of being back in the house I mean I don't know honestly like I don't know if I'm even defending this anymore but it does seem like there was a there must have been a reason that Cooney didn't give us that and almost because it maybe would have been like too easy too obvious to have that that reunion or that confrontation, like I mentioned in my book, where a reader would have a very specific idea of what that should look like. And instead of giving us the obvious, we give us the aftermath, the actual hard work of like 
integrating into the family. And I don't know. I mean, I now I'm curious and wondering if she had a draft of the book where we could see that reunion um, and see if she kind of pulled it off. But yeah, I'm, I am curious now why she chose not to do it. But I wonder if it is any sort of uh, parallel with the reason why I decided to end my book the way that I ended it. So I don't know. That's really interesting because she also doesn't show the reunion later in the book between Janie and the Johnsons when she ends up going back to Connecticut. So I thought I'm glad like I'm glad she chose not to show either. Like I feel like you either had to do both or none. But it was I thought it was kind of fascinating that we like just jumped from one household to the next. And then like most of the book is really centered around Janie's experience in New Jersey and all of the turmoil that comes with that time both for Janie and then for Stephen and Jody, really. Um, as you kind of alluded to earlier, Caitlin, not only has Janie moved to New Jersey, but the rules at the beginning are actually that she is supposed to make like a clean break from her family. And so she's not to talk to them on the phone. There aren't to be any letters, like none of that, which as a human, just I, I feel like that's kind of fucked up. Like how how much more trauma can these people go through to be ripped from their day-to-day lives. And it's all, I guess, in the name of protecting Hannah so that Hannah doesn't like get in trouble again with the FBI. Again, not a lawyer, so I don't know how this would actually work in real life, but it just, it was heartbreaking to me that not only do we have Janie, who's a teenager, which is a weird time to begin with. She's in a new town. She has to go to a new school. She's had to say goodbye to everything she knows. And she also is initially not allowed to have contact with anybody that she knows when she needs that kind of emotional support more than ever. Yeah, I thought that was very odd as well. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. Like you wean people off of things. I understand wanting like maybe, you know, a call once a week or something. I mean, it sort of reminds me of like when you go to summer camp when you're eight years old or seven years old or something and they don't want you to talk to your parents on the phone, but like you can send them letters or like, you know, they're trying to sort of give you that independence and and allow you to sort of assert yourself without your family. But there's always like the option to reach out to them. And the fact that she, I mean, obviously eventually during this book, she is able to call them. And I felt like... That was, I mean, she honestly was like doing well for a while because she was able to sort of have that support, as you mentioned, like that emotional support from them. And they were also like the Johnsons, her her adopted family, they were being really encouraging. You know, they were saying you need to give this, this family a chance. Like they love you. They're so happy to have you back. Like it seemed like everyone was doing everything right, except for, of course, prohibiting her from talking to her old family or to her boyfriend or to her best friend, which is just all, you know, horrible. But it was like so nice when you see her boyfriend come and visit them and he tried to sit down with the new or the new slash old family and get to know them a bit. And yeah, it just seemed like there could have been so many better ways to go about this uh, reintegration. And like none of that happened. And maybe that was also to make the book more dramatic, I think, to heighten the stakes. So that was a choice by the author, I think, because I don't think it has any bearing in what the reality would have been, as you were saying. Like, I don't I don't think that this is rooted in fact or research, but who knows? Maybe it was. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, nobody wins under these circumstances. And also nobody is at fault. And I kept coming back to that as I was reading, except for Hannah, and we don't meet Hannah in this book. I do believe we meet her in future installments. But I just kept thinking like everybody in this book is so mad at each other. They're all mad at themselves. 
And yet nobody has really done anything wrong short of just having like normal human emotions and sometimes saying things that they regret or saying things in a way that maybe came off a little harsher than it should have. But everybody just is like feeling their feelings and sometimes not saying the best things, but nobody's really wrong. And that's why the way that all of this plays out sucks so much because it's kind of setting everybody up for failure. There's no way that Janie is going to thrive. I mean, I do think it's hilarious that everybody seems to think that she's going to go from one day being called Janie and living in Connecticut with parents that she calls mom and dad to the next day being called Jenny and calling an entirely different set of people mom and dad and just like inhabiting a completely different identity. That was never going to happen. Jody and Steven and the younger brothers, even though we don't really see them, like they were never going to just like wake up one day and magically feel like this fifth sibling made easy sense in their family. And the parents, even though we don't get a lot of their interiority, like it was never going to be easy for them emotionally either. They're all still processing. So it was never meant to like go well, I think the way that this is arranged. Um, and something that I thought was really interesting and particularly heartbreaking was the extent to which Janie assumes guilt throughout the book and how many times she questions her own role in her kidnapping and the way that she victim blames herself. Um, there are probably half a dozen times in this book where she has a moment where she was like, what kind of a, a person agrees to leave their family to go with some random stranger? And she can't make peace with the fact that at three years old, she was bribed away from people that she knew and loved by this woman named Hannah who offered her ice cream. And she can't, she can't separate that from who she is as a young adult and who she is as a person. And it's just really sad. Um, and that's where I'm like, I would love for you to talk to someone. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I think that that part of it is also so real though, like mm -hmm. how often people do blame themselves for traumas they have suffered. Um, for sure. You know, it, it happens all the time with like victims of rape and, you know, victims of like domestic abuse. You know, there are so many ways in which we blame ourselves. So I actually found that to be like one of the most successful components of this novel because it just rang so true to me and felt so authentic, as devastating as it was to sort of watch play out in this young girl. Um, but like, and to your point about how no one in this book is really wrong, like no one does anything wrong. They're all like similarly like unsure of how to go about like their new situation and their new circumstances. And I feel like that's what made the book so successful for me. And such an interesting reading experience is that we don't have these like clear cut villains and protagonists, like even Hannah, you know, and I think I, I would love to like at some point talk about how Hannah is talked about in this novel, because I think that there are definitely some problematic moments. Um, but I feel like even Hannah isn't this black and white villain, you know, um, she's obviously someone who's dealing with a lot of traumas of her own that we never really see. And maybe we do in later books, but I, I found that it's to be so successful and I, I find that I appreciate and love books that don't give us, you know, clear villains and clear heroes. Like I'm always a big fan of like the morally gray areas um, and characters that we can sort of debate over, like who is in the wrong, who is in the right. But I think I could really empathize with like every single character in this book, which I think is pretty rare um, to kind of understand where everyone is coming from. And I think probably every reader will 
connect a little bit more with one character just based on your own life experiences. Um, whether or not it's like sibling rivalries with siblings that have had more attention or if, you know, you're a parent who like dealt with the loss of a child, like there's going to be someone you connect with in this book more than you connect with the others. But I understood every character. And that's kind of, that's just really rare. And I felt that Caroline B. Cooney was really successful in that way. Yeah, there's, there's humanity in everyone. And even if you haven't experienced this exact situation, and I think most people haven't, you can sort of draw on your own experiences. Something that I kept thinking about was as a child of divorce, like there are parts of Janie's journey that I really like resonated with because she, you know, she has these moments where she's like having fun with the springs. Like she had worked so hard to try to integrate, even though it was so difficult. And and she doesn't feel, she feels so different. Like she's not a spring. She knows she's not a spring. But then she catches herself having such a good time and then she pulls herself out of it because she's, she feels guilty because she feels like she's sort of cheating on the Johnsons and she's betraying them by letting herself have fun. And, and that's, of course, like a more um, exaggerated version of anything that I've gone through. But my parents got divorced when I was two years old and I've been part of a blended family ever since then. And so I often find myself in situations where I'm like, oh, doing whatever I'm doing with this family makes me feel like a little bit like I'm cheating on these other people or like maybe I should be spending that time over here. So I related, yeah, I related to Janie in that sense. And I also related to Stephen and Jody in some ways because they're seeing change come into their family. And as somebody who's like the oldest in a blended family, like my family has been shaken up multiple times and that can be difficult and, and jealousy is a real thing. But I do want to make sure we talk about Hannah because as you said, Caitlin, there's a lot there. In the end, Stephen and Jody like sort of come to peace with Janie. They realize that she didn't do anything wrong. None of this is her fault. She wants to go back to Connecticut and live her fancy life in Connecticut, but they want revenge. And so they are going to go after Hannah. And in a very naive way, they decide that if they go to New York City, they will be able to just find Hannah. And now that I know that you were born and raised in New York, I lived in New York for 10 years, so we, we can kind of compare some New York notes there. And I think everybody would know this, even if they have never been to New York City, the odds of that actually happening quite low, that you as two teenagers are going to just like take a bus in from New Jersey and find one person uh, who you happen to know was there two years ago. And they're like kind of trying to figure out their ma the math. They're like, so like how many people do you think there are here? which you have to laugh now because I'm like, now we can Google it and you know how many people are there. Worth noting that the reason they know to go to New York is that the FBI agent who was at their home said that the last record they have of Hannah was in New York City two years ago. Um, she was picked up on charges of prostitution. So right, th right off the bat, we kind of have this like this negative representation of sex work, which was very of the time, unfortunately. And now we have Stephen and Jody who are like, yeah, so she must be in like dire straits and we're going to go find her at a soup kitchen. It's all like so cringy. It's so bad. It's, it's really cringy. It's, you know, and there's so many moments in this book where you feel like it could have been more cringy, like given yeah. the adult themes and like the kidnapping and the sort of blended families and just like all the things that all the traumas that this family has endured, like up until the Hannah section, I was sort of like, all right, like so far so good. Like I'm not cringing visibly on right. every page, but then yeah, I think like 
the fact that, you know, the word hooker is used like several times in a really negative connotation um, with negative connotations. And, you know, they go to New York and there's sort of this like fetishization of poverty and like they're going from soup, ki- soup kitchen to soup kitchen and they're like expecting to be like, you know, attacked by like the the druggies on the street, like down the alley, you know, there there's a lot of sort of that like the the urban myths that, you know, everyone that like looks different from you and that looks like they could be dangerous because of like whatever idea of poverty you have in your head, I think just like obviously wouldn't fly now. And seeing it also like from these kids' perspectives, like does sort of like give her at least a little bit of an out for the way that they would be perceiving this big scary world if they haven't left their suburb because again these are two like incredibly sheltered children who have not been allowed to go anywhere because they had a like sister that had presumably been kidnapped so like in that way i was like all right they have this very sheltered very narrow view of the world but i think just in the writing itself like and there was also just a very uncomfortable simile that was used on one page and I don't even, it's like a really ugly simile and I don't even really want to go there, but it was sort of like an image of a lynching just that had no bearing in the novel at all and just felt like a very jarring and unnecessary simile. And it really pulled me out, honestly, um, because it just doesn't, you know, I think the best similes feel rooted in the world of the novel and it didn't at all. So that's another little thing that I'm just going to put to the side for now. That was quite problematic for me. But yeah, I think just, as you said, like the negative, um, representation of sex work in this and sort of the, the the sense that Hannah is a bad person because she has been doing this and and has resorted to that kind of lifestyle. Um, and the only moment that I felt like, okay, at least there's acknowledgement that often it's just something that happens when you have no other choice. Like sometimes sex work is a choice and sometimes it's not. And you just never know. You'd have to talk to someone and ask them, what their life is like and what led them into it. But there's this one section where at the very, very end, they're talking to those police officers, which is also hilarious that like... (laughs) Didn't he like take them for a soda or something? He's like, this calls for a snack. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That are just like... But I mean, honestly, that resonated with me that like police officers in New York like just stand around the street corner doing absolutely nothing. They say, you don't need to take your revenge on Hannah. Life already has. And in that sense, I was like, okay, that's probably true. That resonates. Like, this is a woman who has clearly been through a lot. Um, Who knows where she is now? Like, that is also something that I'm now curious to read the rest of the books in the series because I want to know if maybe she's, like, doing better now, is rehabilitated, has escaped the clutches of the cult. But in that moment, I was sort of glad that there was at least some empathy for Hannah towards the end. But at the same time, like, we don't know what Hannah's lifestyle is. We don't know what she has chosen. We don't know what she has been forced into we don't know what she has done of her own free will we really know nothing about her so in that sense there was still you know a lot of like question marks surrounding hannah and her life but at least i was glad that we ended with like a somewhat empathetic vision of hannah and of of you know the world that perhaps she had not chosen yeah there are a lot of assumptions made about how you know and i would put this in quotes like a person like hannah might end up and why that would be sort of that's fair like she got what she deserved and that's certainly like something that we want to be mindful of and not something that I agree with but I do think that there's again she's like getting toward a nuance we're like getting there almost there's almost a conversation there about how life can be much more complicated than these kids might realize in their New Jersey suburb 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I think just like the, there was the language around the people that they're seeing in New York, the language around the person who they thought for a second was Hannah, who they refer to as it and, and, and the creature. Um, there's just a sense of like objectifying uh, folks who are experiencing homelessness and this judgment about them that is extremely uncomfortable. And I, I would imagine that Caroline B. Cooney looking back would be like, you know, I would just tweak that language. Um, and I, I certainly like give her the benefit of the doubt on that one. One other quick note before we start to wrap up, because this is cringy, but not quite as upsetting. Reeve. <laughs> oh, yeah. Reeve, the boyfriend. As you said, like, he has some good moments. Like, he drives to New Jersey. He tries to get acquainted with the Springs. Like, he wants them to trust him. He wants to sort of bring Janie out of her shell, and he's successful in doing that. But I, and I do remember this from the first book. He is just like a caricature of every teenage boy. And <laughs> he's always thinking like, about her body. You know, like in, in the 90s and in the early aughts when I was a kid, I like I was told that that's like how how boys are. Um, and I, I did write down a couple of quotes from and about him just because they made me laugh. Why did girls need to talk so much? Reeve preferred action. <laughs> physical action every time he and Janie had been ready to move beyond kissing it turned out that only he was ready Janie was just ready for more talk and it's like oh you know girls like girls won't shut up and also like god forbid girls have any sexual interest um it was just so like heteronormative and hilariously wrong <laughs> it was it's I like yeah it it's very funny but it's almost like it didn't offend me because I was right. like you can't you get know offended what? On the one hand, I, I felt like that was actually really accurate. Yeah. Like there, there are a lot of boys who like didn't give a shit about what you had to say yeah. in high school, you yeah. know, and like we're just going to go tell their friends like what base they got to. And obviously I knew a lot of wonderful boys in high school, but like that just actually un unfortunately resonated yeah. more than I wanted yeah. it to. I was like, man, yeah, I knew a lot of boys like this. Um, and yeah. I don't know if that he was like the perfect boyfriend that she, you know, envisions or idealizes him to be. But in the sense of, like, he represented this idyllic situation that she had had, you know, in Connecticut. Like, her first boyfriend, even if he did just like her body, <laughs> it still yeah. seemed like she had good memories of him and good associations with him. So I sort of just, like, let that slide. But you're right. Like, there were definitely moments where I was like, okay, Reeve, calm down. The author also avoided some, like, seriously creepy and, like, potentially illegal and problematic territory. Oh, statutory stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So the Johnsons like guessed as to how old Janie was when they when they met her, found her, um, when Hannah brought her to them. But it turns out that she was actually a year younger. And when he comes to visit her, Reeve says, I'm 18 now. And it turns out you're a whole year younger than we thought. You're little. You're just a little girl, Janie Johnson, which is such a a weird creepy thing to say and we do know at this point that they have not had sex but there's a very inappropriate disconcerting power balance thing going on that I I kind of like that Caroline Bikuni was like you know what I established this but we're just gonna pretend that it's not happening yeah we're just gonna keep moving <laughs> no that's true now I'm remembering that scene now yeah because she's 15 he's 18 so therefore he's now an adult and yeah. she's still yeah. a teenager yeah <sighs> not the best yeah, crisis averted. Um, on the whole, Caitlin, how would you characterize this experience of coming to whatever happened to Janie as an adult? I know that you primarily remember the first book in the series. 
Um, but overall, how did this rereading experience compare to your memory of that one? I mean, I think this reading experience was a lot um, more interesting for me personally, because I think now that I have more life experience and can finally sort of understand what this kind of situation might look like from so many different perspectives and from so many different family members' perspectives, I feel like it's become a much richer and more whole reading experience for me. And like I said, I, I think I only read the first one in the series, um, which is almost like, you know, when you read The Face of the Milk Carton as a child, it has almost this like worst case scenario you know, you read it because it's almost like a bit of a, a cautionary tale, right? If you're reading it in school, it's almost because your teachers or your parents like want you to not get in cars with strangers. It had a sort of moralistic intention when you're assigned to read it as a child or as a teenager. And now I just sort of was reading it with a more open mind about all of the ways in which this could reverberate. Um, and I think with added knowledge of just what trauma looks like and, and how that manifests and all the ways we were discussing over the last hour. So I feel like I had a much more interesting experience this time around and it was way more provocative than I remember it being. Yeah, well, I am so glad we were able to have such a rich conversation about it. I echo everything you said. Other than whatever happened to Janie, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? Oh gosh, I read so I read so many amazing books in the last month. Um, something that I finished recently that I really loved um, was *The Rabbit Hutch* by Tess Gunty. I think it recently won the National Book Award, um, and I just I really loved it. I thought it was so beautifully written, and had a really interesting twist towards the end. And yeah, I really recommend that. Also, and I, I feel like this is really evil to do because it's not published yet, <laughs> but um, a couple books that I'm so excited about that are coming out next year that I would love to plug because I, I really loved them. Um, the first is called Death of a Bookseller by Alice Slater. I think it comes out in April. Um, and then a book called Adelaide by Genevieve Wheeler that also comes out in April. Love the book so much. I feel like, you know, this is maybe going to sound self-absorbed, but like I love them also because they had so many things in common with my novel. So I was almost able to like have this really wonderful experience of seeing the ways that not only me, but lots of other writers are being are like currently preoccupied with the same themes. And I, so I just, I found them really fascinating to sort of see how another writer deals with similar themes that I deal with. Um, they do it so successfully and so wonderfully. And one of them is more of sort of like um, a relationship story, a self-love story with a fantastic twist halfway through. And then the other is sort of more of a thriller, very stalkery vibes, um, very, very funny, like the darkest humor that I have experienced in a long time um, to points where I was like actually visibly disgusted, but also could not put, just could not put it down. So that was Death of a Bookseller in Adelaide. Um, and for those of us who want to sort of do a bit of a throwback, I also recently read for the first time Good Morning Midnight by Jean Reese. And she is just a masterclass in every way on the line level, on the level of just like emotional depth. Um, I definitely cried like multiple times while reading that book. So if you need something cathartic, highly recommend. And yeah, that's, that's all I got for now. Those are great recommendations. I'll include links to all of them in the show notes. For the books that aren't out yet, listeners, go pre-order because pre-orders are really important. Okay, 
So I fangirled a little bit before we started recording, and I've hinted at this uh, over the last hour, but your book, A Novel Obsession, was actually one of my favorite books of 2022. I'm not just saying that. You can check my ratings on Storygraph. I absolutely devoured it. It's just it's so good. I've been telling everybody to read it. We were actually just talking about how great it is um, over in the Patreon book club this morning, and I was like, I'm going to go talk to Caitlin today. So for those who haven't read it, um, and who have not yet listened to my pleas, which I have been making on social media for the last few months to go get it. Can you tell us more about the book and maybe what inspired it? Of course. Um, well, thank you so much again. That It never gets old to hear that. And I'm just so glad that you enjoyed it and that it resonated with you. Um, so the book, it's yeah, Novel Obsession. It's about a young woman named Naomi who becomes absolutely obsessed uh, with her boyfriend Caleb's ex-girlfriend, Rosemary, and begins to stalk her and then befriend her under false pretenses so obviously super normal behavior <laughs> um no <laughs> but yeah i i started writing it simply because that I mean, we, we sort of alluded to this earlier but i'm just fascinated by the ways in which we like completely expose ourselves on social media in this day and age um and i'm fascinated by the ways that we sort of try to construct ourselves for other people's eyes um and the way we sort of self-narrativize ourselves and try to you know, promote this highlight reel and the ways in which we might make assumptions about other people because of what we see them post. And so I really wanted to sort of find a story to tell that would allow me to really like delve into the dark side of what that looks like and how social media can sort of be a vehicle for bad behavior. And yeah, and it just, I had so much fun writing this because I feel like I got to explore just all the worst impulses that a human being could have. And I allowed Naomi to kind of act on all her worst impulses, which is something that I do not recommend we do in real life, but something that I absolutely had such a blast imagining and writing down um, because it's sort of like I got to live vicariously through her and see what would happen if I absolutely did act on all my worst impulses. And so I hope that it would resonate with people who also have had dark thoughts, but could not and would not act on them. So yes, that was that was mainly my inspiration, but also just, I was working, you know, I was, because I was working on writing a novel, um, I also wanted to explore that sort of creative blockage and, um, which is, so Naomi is a writer and she's trying to write a book. And so she actually decides that she's going to stalk and befriend Rosemary and write a book about it, which is sort of this whole other subplot that kind of runs underneath the actual present action of the novel. I think I was just so obsessed with the creative process and just how difficult it is to find something that will sustain you and creatively and make you interested enough to continue writing that I wanted to work in that meta element um, because it was something that I was so like obsessed with and preoccupied with. So I thought, why not write about the thing that I'm thinking about constantly? And I think the meta element ends up being like a really important, a really important plot twist later on um, that I will not spoil for those of you who haven't read it, but it ended up being um, a really fun thing to play with and experiment with on the page. Well, it worked. I loved it. I ate it up. Listeners, Go get it if you have not yet. I would imagine the answer is no, but can you share anything about anything you're working on now or what might be coming up? Um, so I am working on a second book and it's also going to be about a woman and a close relationship with her grandmother, which is something that actually a novel obsession has. 
And I'm always sort of stressed about this. I'm like, oh, here I go. I'm like writing about a similar thing, similar relationship, but I feel like so many writers write about sort of the same thing until they can get at it from different angles. Um, but in this case, I, I wanna write a book about a woman who becomes obsessed with a painting that she has in her apartment. Um, and she doesn't know who the, the woman in the painting is, but she feels like the woman in the painting looks a lot like her. And so this fascinates her, this freaks her out a little bit, and she sort of goes on this journey, this physical journey, literal journey, to try to figure out who this woman is. And we sort of learn a little bit about her own um, past and background, and we learn about who painted it. And there's gonna be sort of like a lot of interesting stuff surrounding this painting, hopefully, if it, if it all goes well. Um, and we'll also have a relationship between this woman and her grandmother, which I clearly can't not have in a book of mine. Like I just, my grandmother was such a big influence in my life and I find that all my characters have grandparents that are big influences in their lives. So I can't quit that somehow. Yeah, my grandmother was a huge person role icon in my life. And so that really, I loved that element of a novel obsession and I will be first in line for anything else that you write. So um, I can't wait to read it and I really appreciate your time today. And I congratulate you on all the success you've had with a novel obsession. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for this. This has been so fun. I honestly had a blast rereading this and I'm really glad that you gave me the opportunity to. Um, and now I feel like I'm going to have to rush out and get the rest of the series. Maybe we'll do a part two. Okay. I, don't tempt me with a good time. I'd love to have you back and we can do it. Thank you. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.